There was definitely squeezing it in. There was no specific schedule. I mean, every so often, my wife said, what are you doing today? I said, I've got to write. And sure enough, that never happened (laughs) uh, because of something else. But I could have easily procrastinated, but I didn't. I was still driven. And maybe because sometimes I would sleep less and thoughts would go through my head that I wanted to get out. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join The Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to The Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and if there's one thing that I know for sure, or I could say with a lot of confidence, is that the number one excuse that people give for not being able to write their book is that they feel that they're too short on time. So I thought it would be fun for us to talk today with Dr. Robert Saul. And he is going to talk with us about how to make time to write your book. And if there's anybody or any type of person who has usually a ton of demands on their time and not a whole lot of free time to write or do anything else, it's a physician. And in particular, Bob's specialty was pediatrics. So in over 44 years as a pediatrician, Robert Saul has developed a keen awareness of parenting skills and raising children to be good citizens, which is why he wrote the book, Conscious Parenting, Using the Parental Awareness Threshold. This was published by Kohler in 2020, and it provides a framework to give parents the learned ability to understand their interactions with their children and to change their responses to maximize positive results and minimize the negative ones. And so Bob will, will be talking to us a bit about the content of the book, and he's got some wonderful insights to share. But really, the, the reason I invited him on was to talk about what were some of the ways that Bob managed to get not only this book, but a few others written during a time when he had so many demands on his own time. And I hope that you will find some great ideas in here if you're struggling with finding time to write your book, Bob shares with me, and he will share with you, with all of us, some really great ideas on how to overcome that. So enjoy. So Robert, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today. This is exciting. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. And I have to admit, when when you reached out and suggested that you come on to talk about how to be a busy person and get a book done, I thought, well, who could possibly be better than a medical doctor? (laughs) Generally and specifically a pediatrician, uh, because we know that pediatricians like parents are busy all hours of the night and day. (laughs) And uh, some of my busiest friends are also medical doctors. So uh, thank you for coming on the show to to share with us today. Oh, this will be fun. Thank you. So before we get into the how of, of how you navigated this, tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write your book in the first place. 
Um, well, that, that's an interesting story, and I'll, I'll try to make it briefly. I finished my residency training in 1979 in pediatrics, and I also did medical genetics. And I was in practice for about 14 years, felt like I was being a good doctor, doing all the right things. And then I really felt like I wasn't paying back to my community like I should. So I went and heard a talk in 1993 from a healthcare futurist who basically said, in a sort of an evangelical way, for anything that happens in your community, I am the problem, I am the solution, I am the resource. Mm. Those 12 words had a profound impact on me, though I wasn't quite sure how to internalize them. You know, I was a busy doctor. I wanted, I'm busy. I'm helping heal people. I don't need to get involved. But I felt like I did need to get involved in the community. Six years later, the second step occurred. April 20, 1999, two students walk into a high school in Littleton, Colorado, massacre 13 people and kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Could that happen in my community? Yes. What have I done to make a difference? Not enough. You know, I have to interject one thing here because I don't think this is a coincidence. So when that happened, I lived in Colorado at the time and I was at the pediatrician's office with my just over one-year-old daughter when that happened. And I was watching it in the news on the wait, in the waiting room. And I just can remember all the thoughts that were going through my mind as I was sitting there with my little girl and, and hearing that awful news. So anyway, I just think that this, this shows a real connection to what you're saying. Yeah. And I went to college. I went to high school, college and medical school in Colorado. So. Oh, OK. So you had a strong tie there, too. There were certainly are some ties there, but I happened to be in Chicago on that day flying back and saw it on the airport, the airport screen. And it just had such a profound impact on me. And I wasn't quite sure how to internalize it. Wasn't quite sure what to do. I sat down, put pencil to paper. Back then we did that and wrote a letter to the editor about what each what I thought each of us should be doing to make a difference in our community. Penned what I said were the five steps to community improvement at the time. And then I realized that the effort can't stop there. I need to keep going. So I, over the next 12, 13 years, I wrote over 160 op-ed articles to the local newspaper on these five steps. And it became obvious to me as I was sharing those with people in the community and with people around the country, they said, Bob, you need to turn this into a book. And so that's the initial journey as to how I got going. It's interesting to me then, but try to pick it apart. How did you sort of write the individual pieces? Well, it was the inspiration always came whenever I was walking our little dog in the morning and I would uh, and I would just f figure out what the op-ed uh, piece was going to be for that two to three week period and do it. And, you know, it got <laughs> written out, hashed out, re redone. Uh, but I've had, once you had 160 of those, uh, you certainly had material to put it all together uh, into, into a book. So that was, that started my journey. Okay. So let, let me, let me ask you this, because you're a pediatrician. Uh, I presume on the medical side, or unless you're a pediatric psychiatrist, which I didn't gather from your background. So, so what led you to write a book about conscious parenting? I actually changed jobs, and that's probably what got me to conscious parenting. When I changed jobs, I took a, they told me I had to take a leadership course. I rolled my eyes and said, oh gosh, I got to take another leadership course. And I've been doing this my whole life, but I did it. 
And like so many things, I was better for it. Uh, and they talked about, simplistically, they talked about conscious leadership. And with conscious leadership, you're, they talk about a line. When you're above the line, you're open, you're receptive, you're ready to learn. When you're below the line, you're closed, you're defensive, you're always right. And the, and the whole point is not that you won't be above and below the line. We will. I mean, we've all been in that meeting at three o'clock when we go, oh, when's this meeting over? Right, right. When are they going to stop talking <laughs> so I can go? <laughs> so so the, the whole point is just being conscious about where you are. You're below the line. Are you going to change or are you going to just stay there until the meeting's over? Well, the analogy to me was obvious in terms of parenting. The same thing applies to parenting. And I came up with what was called the parental awareness threshold. When you're above that, you're open, you're receptive, you're ready to learn, you're ready to actively engage with your child and listen. When you're below it, you're closed, you're defensive, you're always right because I said so, because I'm the parent. And so the, the point is being consciously aware of where you are in that dynamic but in terms of conscious parenting, you need to be where you are in terms of personally and where your child is emotionally and developmentally. Because you might handle something on Monday morning at eight o'clock, the exact same set of circumstances very differently than you would Thursday at three o'clock. And so you need to know sort of where you are, how you can deal with this uh, on a conscious basis that demonstrates love and understanding to your child. That's that's terrific. Yes, everybody needs that. The more awareness you can bring to parenting, the better off everyone is, I think. Because my my bias is is the the job of parenting is raising your children to be good citizens. Mm -hmm. It's not I think happiness is a blissful secondary side effect. Yes. <laughs> we should not be shooting for I just want you to be happy. And that that happened with me. My parents divorced. And I remember my mother saying, Bob, I just want you to be happy. I'm sure she felt guilty. Here she, here she was in this circumstance. My first marriage ended up in divorce. And I remember telling my oldest son, I just want you to be happy. Until I figured out that I had this a little bass backwards. Uh, and I need to, need to reorganize my thoughts and, and my plan here. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not always going to be happy every minute. But we can still be good citizens. Absolutely. Yeah. And so those are, and I interjected a couple other books in there. There was a children's book, and then there was a, a techno, more technical book that I co-authored with somebody. But I think what got me going in, in terms of the authorship writing spirit was just the passion for the message. And I, in some ways, I felt like I was a vessel that I needed to get that out there. There was no, there was not going to be any personal financial gain. Right. As, a fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there was going to be personal financial pain <laughs> from doing this. But the the gain it was in terms of what I could do to get the message out there. And it, you know, if only one person heard it and felt that it made sense, so be it. Okay. So yeah. You know, I hear so many people say that, but I always want to push back and say, no, no, no. More people is better. Because <laughs> you can have a bigger impact. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And that's so I've been on this journey also to figure out how to, via social media and other contexts, how to how to expand that. Because my next project, I want to would like to think I could get a more traditional publishing uh contract uh, and have 
help uh, in terms of marketing and publicity in terms in terms of getting that out there. Because you're right. I mean, otherwise, I'm just standing in my backyard yelling at the trees. Uh, and I, I want to I want to make sure that it gets to the whole neighborhood and beyond. Terrific. Yeah. And 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 you're right. I mean, there's definitely value in helping even just one person because there's always those ripple effects as well. And I'm sure I I happen to know you've that more than one person has read your book because you have more than that many reviews. So there. <laughs> so all right, let's talk about so tell tell us a little bit about like what is when you're when you're talking about writing as a busy professional. What was a typical day like for you that you had to squeeze the writing into? Well, it it was never organized. I mean, uh, and some of the writing and for the conscious parenting book was actually um, because I was working out of town. So so I actually had the, if you call it a luxury, it was it was I was away from my family, but I had the luxury of being by myself in a hotel room to do some work. Prior to that, I would just have to. When I had quiet time, thoughts would just have to come into my head, and then I'd specifically sort of go running to my study, or don't tell anybody. Even at work, I would find myself writing paragraphs or pages of stuff. So it sounds like you kind of squeezed it in uh, when you saw an opening, versus like did you have did you attempt even to have a writing schedule, or was it more this uh, get it when you can? You know, it was there was definitely squeezing it in. There was there was no specific schedule. I mean, every so often, I my wife said, "What are you doing today?" I said, well, "I've got to write." And sure enough, that never happened <laughs> uh, because of something else. But you know, I I could have easily procrastinated, but I didn't. I was still driven, uh, and maybe because I was just sometimes I would would sleep less, and thoughts would go through my head that I wanted to get out. So did you find yourself getting out of bed to, to make notes or keeping a notebook by your bedside? Or I, I should have. I would just keep mental notes. And then only about a third of them would be retained by the time I got up in the morning. Right, right. Yeah. Well, maybe it was the third, the, the best third, we hope. Right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I think this is so, this should be really encouraging, though, to our listeners, because I think that people do tend to get hung up on this idea of keeping a writing schedule or, you know, having to carve out a certain amount of time. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it can be very facilitative to do that, but if you, if you take the approach that it's gotta be this perfect schedule or you can't do it. And if that's been stopping you, then you're in the right place uh, here listening to what Robert has to say. So uh, tell us some more, what, what was the most unusual place you found yourself writing your book? Um, I wrote, well, I wrote a part of one of the chapters uh, that I initially wrote as a blog and then uh, integrating into my current book was uh, waiting in a waiting room uh, during while my wife had a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely downtime for me. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> I know uh, there's an inappropriate joke there. I'm not even going <laughs> to. <laughs> Just know yeah, we, that we, won't, a- we won't talk about the quality of the piece. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I have found, I know you said you did a lot of traveling. One of my favorite times to work is when I'm on an airplane or on a train. Did, did, did you find that was also a good time for you or were you doing other stuff when you were on the airplane? The, the airplane airplane is too distracting for me. Oh, really? Uh, okay. And it, I don't know if it's the noise or uh 
or just whatever. But I, um, I just had to squeeze it in when, when the, when the spirit moved me. Yeah. Um, now I must admit now I'm trying to be a little more intentional with my current prod with my current project. Uh, but part of that is I, I sort of feel like I'm planting uh, seedlings because I'm continuing now, instead of writing op-ed pieces to the local paper, forced myself to write a blog post every week mm-hmm. uh, that I send out to my mailing list. That now is, is the seedlings for a lot of what I'm working on. Uh, I find that I can easily cut and paste, if you will, that I've done a lot of that work for what I'm trying to do in the in the broader project that I'm working on. I think that's a super smart way to go about writing your book. And another way that I, I've advised and that people have done it is if you're if you do any public speaking, to try out your material from your book on your speaking audience. And what you're doing is you're trying it out on your blog readership and on your list. And do you find that you get more response from certain posts than others? And do, 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 do people on your list write back to you? Or, or is there anything that you use as a litmus test to say, oh, I'm really onto something here or not? Well, I'm, I'm never quite sure what what a open rate means when you send that. <laughs> I'm told that my 45 to 50% open rate is, is good. Um, and I'm, unfortunately, I'm a little too compulsive about looking at that. Uh, but I do get typically three to four specific direct email responses say, thank you very much. That was so, so insightful. Uh, and from some people that respond directly to the email or send me a, a private email uh, otherwise. So those things have, have kept me going. Yeah. Yeah. I must admit, it's also, I, I still get an op-ed paper in the local newspaper, but the editor keeps it to one a month. Yeah. And they put, my, they put my little mugshot in there and I'll get people that, that I don't even know that will come up to me in the local stores and say, Doc, thanks. Keep it up. Oh, wow. So you're a little local celebrity there. No. <laughs> I've been I've been in this community now for over 40 years. So well, that yeah, that helps. <laughs> Hi there, Robin here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality standout book with a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach? In case you're new to the Author's Corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world-class experts write world-changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers. And others have increased their business income by 600 times or more as a result of their book being out in the world and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top-notch expert who is ready to write your world-changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. We have a limited number of spots available, and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, 
The link is www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Now, back to the show. So now, are you still writing on parenting? Is that your wheelhouse now or have you broadened your horizons like what's this next project for you this next project is well it's it i mean it's all it's all connected for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then this next project is is what's called what really matters and, and the genesis for that was actually i was at a book expo in new york city uh in 2018 and heard john Kerry talk uh, and he was talking about uh, sort of where we were politically. He's talking about his new book that was coming out, which is called Every Day is Extra. Um, and it was obvious to me, listening to him and his life story, that we'd lost track of what I considered to be the things that really matter. And that night in my head, I mean, I wrote this article, uh, and that's now the genesis of where I'm going. But that's this has been a now three or four year project in terms of what really matters, truth, trust, science, Civility, diversity, and faith. Oh yeah. Now that's my. You might you might say, what what a hodgepodge uh, that is. But the, that's that's my job is to put all that together. And unfortunately, I have a a co-author who's going to help me. Uh, so uh, we're we're making some headway. It's I mean it's about seventy percent written, but definitely. It's like so many things. I've thrown the spaghetti on the wall and I have to figure out what sticks. Right, right. Well, I was just so happy to hear you say science. <laughs> we, we really need reminding of that lately. <laughs> no, and, and as a physician who who saw, you know, too many uh, during the pandemic, well, has seen the joys of vaccine savings uh, over my lifetime um, and, and knowing that that makes a world of difference and then seeing the lack of trust in science during the during the pandemic and the, the problems we had there it was really disheartening to me so I I think I wanted to bring that back in and you know one of the things is people talk about science and faith so that's why I brought both of those in there the the previous, uh, head of the NIH, a fellow named Francis Collins, uh, was an ultimate scientist, but he was also a man of significant faith. And, and there was no conflict there. Uh, there really isn't. So that's why it's those, those, those go together. Yeah, and I think there's room for both, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was I, I can't help but ask this is really kind of off topic, but we're talking about parenting. We're talking about vaccinations and you being a pa- pediatrician. I know there's another very controversial area around s- some parents, you know, being more not wanting not wanting to vaccinate their children. And I'm not sure what the question is here, except as as a conscious physician, how did you handle that? Did, did, did you ever encounter that with with any of your patients? And if so, how did you handle that? Yes. I mean, I, I certainly encountered it. And, you know, my first instinct is to say, what's wrong with you? Uh, no, why don't you understand this? But that that's, doesn't get you, that doesn't help build trust. Uh, that doesn't help get you to the next stage of trying to get the family to understand the importance of this. So it was a process. I mean, so if a family came in just after the baby was born and said, no, we're not going to give little Johnny his shots because my job was to address the becauses 
Uh, but my job was also to help them understand why these things evolved. I mean, you know, the example when I was in, uh, I was in training in the mid 1970s, and so many of the illnesses that nobody sees today, I wrote death certificates for back then. I mean, why would you take that chance? And it's not just, well, you hope everyone else gets vaccinated. It's the population that needs where that needs to happen. And so it's it's hard. I mean, it would really be discouraging when some there would still be a few recalcitrant few that would say, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. But I gently worked on them every time they were in. Yeah. And I think the most important thing is in my profession is developing trust and trying to understand what's happening. You know, early on in my career, people would come in and say, well, what do I do here, doc? And of course I was smart. I just gone to school. I'd gotten training. I'd read books. I knew everything there was. Of course. Uh, and, I, and they asked me a question. I could give them an answer, but it took me 40 years to realize that my job was to, to not tell them but was to help empower them, was to help enable them, was to help gently peer behind the curtain, try to help analyze the situation and be their ally going forward instead of telling them specifically what to do. Uh, and that's what that's a lot of what parenting is about. I was just thinking that sounds like the same skills of being a great parent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things we found in early brain and child development science is the importance of what in terms of how children develop and are nurtured is the establishment and the perpetuation of safe, stable, nurturing relationships, or we call them SSNRs. And that is so crucial. Uh, well, the same thing has to be with a healthcare professional in the family. We need to help establish so they feel like what the doctor is saying makes sense. Because when I go to the doctor, I have this tremendous faith in them. And I want folks to feel the same when they're seeing me as a healthcare professional. Yeah. And we really have to put so much faith in our physicians, right? Because there's a lot of education that goes behind all of that advice. Well, you know, because people sometimes say, well, you know, we're, we're, I know how to do this. Well, you know, I went to college four years, medical school four years, three years of training, had to be board certified, continuing education every year, have to be recertified. Why? Because I don't know everything. And why? Because I can continually improve. And so you that's the whole point of putting the trust in the, in the doctors going forward, because Dr. Google uh, isn't didn't go to medical school. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And you can really upset yourself Googling a disease. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, obviously doctors, doctors. <laughs> Do you get a lot of those? Did you get like those kinds of calls from parents? Like she's got, you know, she's, she's got a tummy ache and I Googled it and I think she has stomach cancer. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm probably not. Right. <laughs> One of the things I learned, uh, especially when you, Kids in the second decade of life came into the office. Parents would say, "My child has a headache," and so I would go. I would go through the the signs and symptoms, do the physical examination, basically demonstrating that everything was okay. And I said, "I want you to know." I said, "I'm I'm I'm not putting anything in your head, but I bet you in the back of your head is you think this child has a brain tumor." The answer is they do not. 
and we don't need to do a CT or an MRI to prove it right now. Right. right. <laughs> um, so yes, you don't, it's, it's perfectly fine to understand the dynamic of the situation uh, and be forthright uh, once you've, once you've gained that experience. Right. Right. And did, were the parents like relieved when you just called it out versus making them because, you know, there's that part of you, I, I know as a parent, right, we all get that, right? It's like the part of you, your rational brain is saying, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and your irrational part of your brain is going, well, you should, but what if it isn't, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so for the doctor to kind of break that spell and just tell you what you need to hear <laughs> could probably be very helpful. Absolutely. Right? When my oldest child was three weeks old, he developed some blisters down in the groin area. Now, that could have just been a little superficial infection. I knew as a physician that that could lead to a horrible infection. Oh, yeah. His mother, my first wife, said, what does that mean? I said, oh, it doesn't mean anything. And then I quickly closed the door and called one of my colleagues and said, oh, my God, what am I supposed to do? I mean, so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so even the doctor. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a little crazy sometimes as a parent. You know, that's that's just part of being a parent, right? You just get that. Mama tiger is what my my kids used to. Oh, mama tiger's out. <laughs> and to me, that's the that's the exciting thing about writing and trying to get the message out there is to is to knowing that everyone sort of has these anxieties about about parenting. And you know, the conscious parenting book was taught meant to talk about that parental awareness threshold. But then I specifically realized that I needed to give specific examples between zero and one and one and five and five and 10 and 10 and 20, because people are going to be confronting these at a specific time. I couldn't, I could not come close to providing how to deal with every scenario, sure. but, just, but just a template. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not the scenario so much that matters, just where, where you are emotionally and mentally, because any scenario, I mean, it's, it's how you deal with it. It's not what's happening. It's how you respond to it. That that's going to make the difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the ad, or whoever is the the main worker comes home and the child's sitting in the high chair throwing peas. Well, to the person that's been working all day, that's that's really cute. <laughs> For the person that's been in the house all day, right. cleaning up peas all day, cleaning <laughs> and cooking, you know, and three more damn peas on the floor is more than they can take. Right. <laughs> So yes, it, it all depends on where you are, and and you know it's, this has happened. This holds also for all of our interpersonal relationships. Every time you want to pause, you want to assess, and then you want to choose, and you might choose the wrong response. I mean, we've all done that, and that's where that's where the whole point of forgiveness comes in: learning how to understand how to forgive yourself first and forgive others. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Well, that's such a lovely thought. I am going to stop there and ask you my famous final question, which is, what have I not asked you that you would love to answer? Oh, golly gee. I mean, I think I think you've asked how I got there, but the the other question might be why. Great. Oh, uh, and I know I guess now you want me to answer it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> my my family had i mean there were some obviously some significant difficulties in my family my 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 father was an alcoholic uh, my parents divorced when i was young my mother divorced in the 1950s when that was not something one did uh there was no no support for my mother matter of fact she was sort of the scourge of the family to do something like that so here she was a single parent raising these kids and I realized it's as I was going through so many of these revelations, if you will, in terms of I am the problem, I am the solution, I am the resource. And what Columbine took me to in citizenship was what my mother was, uh, was the lessons that she was imparting all along. Mm. So the words and deeds of my mother uh, became my raison d'etre, uh, if you will. Now, it, that, what, that why wasn't obvious right away. But I think it's become obvious over time. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I just love that you uh, show so much appreciation and um, reverence in a way for your mom and, you know, how she raised you. Well, I, yes, it makes me teary, but I, it, it really it was substantial. And that's interesting how we, because at the end of her life was sort of the, the devil child. Because I was the one that had to make the tough decisions that she did not want to hear. Uh, oh, right. So at the, end, at the end of her life, as I was the was the bad guy, that was hard. Uh, but I knew it wasn't the same mom that I'd lived with my whole life. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, that's where you're kind of stepping back into a more parental role, right? Where you're having to make decisions on their behalf. And as with our children, sometimes the unpopular decision isn't. Is, is still the best one. <laughs> well, a quick anecdote. I was I was selling books at one at a little fair one day, and somebody came up to me. He said, "Oh, parenting. I I don't know any. I don't need to worry about that anymore." I said, "Are you kidding me? You're never done parenting." And it's obvious to me is that like you you, you especially when you start parenting. Right. Your parents. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that what a great note. <laughs> And on for today. Uh, Robert, this has been so much fun. And I thank you again for being with us today on the Author's Corner. Well, this has been my pleasure. I'm really excited to have been here today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of the Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.